his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our Lord. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, usual Lord. For as for heaven, the highest in the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thought than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water to the earth, make it break forth and smell, give seed to sow and bread to your seed. So saw my word and come out in my mouth. It shall not return to an empty, it shall accomplish my purpose and shall see in the vain voice as I say. You, however, have all facing and conduct, and my, and my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecution, suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Mercy, in persecuted I endure, yet in tomorrow's over mercy. Indeed, all we decide to God of Christ. While even in Paul's deceiving being received, I ask for you continue to what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with Christ, the Father in Jesus. All scripture is bread, profitable for teaching, for reproval, for affliction, for teaching and that man of God may be equipped, equipped for every word. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and I'm giving the following time to Pastor Ben. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Um, greetings from Three Rivers Grace Church just down the hill from here. And uh, we are really grateful for the partnership we have in the gospel and uh, my, my wife, Stacy, and myself, we have really appreciated our friendship with Pastor Hans and Irene, and um, our two younger kids, Annalise and Micah, are here with us this morning, and our two older kids are at Three Rivers Grace, um, uh, participating in different ways there this morning. But uh, I'm so happy uh, to, to be with you and worship this morning. It's, it's a, a blessing to uh, sing with you and, and uh, read scripture with you, and now to open God's word with you. So if, if you would, please uh, open a copy of the scriptures with me to Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 specifically. Um, but I want to begin by asking you a question to, to think about, um, what is your uh, favorite book? Do you have a favorite book, and, and why, why is that your favorite book? Uh, what types of books come to mind? What types of books do you enjoy uh, looking at and studying and reading? Maybe you like the classics, um, or suspense novels, biographies, uh, maybe you're into science fiction, uh, travel books, uh, funny books, um, I I inspirational books, picture books, uh, maybe you enjoy reading, you know, picture books to your kids, um, uh, textbooks, some of your students, and, you know, textbooks, maybe those aren't your favorite books, but, um, you know, books that can teach you uh, about physics or chemistry or biology or calculus, uh, books about history or politics, or uh, philosophy? What are the things you find most interesting to read? What holds your attention? What is it that captivates your interest? You know, sometimes we read certain things because we need certain information. Um, there's certain things we want to learn or instructions on how to do something, um, like a recipe or an instructional manual. Um, recently, I was installing a new faucet in one of the sinks in our house, and I was very focused on that, those instructions of how to do that. Um, and as soon as I had that faucet installed and saw that everything was working properly, then all of a sudden I had absolutely no interest uh, in those instructions whatsoever. In stark contrast to that, um, a, a book I remember reading and that had quite an impact on me was uh, reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, a very long book. Um, and it took me a long time to read it, and, and a, a difficult book to read in, in ways because it's so uh, gripping and so heart-wrenching as I got to know the characters and to uh, lament with those characters and grieve the atrocities of American slavery. Powerful literature uh, can connect with us at a very deep level. 
not only teaching us intellectually or not only you know, giving us instructions on how to do a particular task, but, but impacting us emotionally. Um, so think for yourself. Think about a, a book or, or maybe a short story or a poem maybe that has really spoken to you, really has gripped your heart, something you would enjoy uh, going back and reading again and maybe again and again. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to think about a piece of literature that is in a category completely on its own. The Bible, uh, the Bible is one book made up of 66 books in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the short passage from this book that we're going to look at this morning, just two verses, um, is, is from uh, Hebrews 4, as I mentioned. And uh, it shows us that God's Word, which is another way of referring to this book, um, God's Word is, is more powerful, more penetrating, more meaningful and enduring than any other book in the world. You know, we have a God who speaks. Our God speaks. He is not silent. He is vocal, and He has spoken, and He has revealed Himself in, in many ways through the ages. He's revealed Himself through the prophets, he revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and his revelation of himself has been written down in this book, all of it guided by the Holy Spirit down to the very word. So let's study together this morning what God's word shows us about God's word. And our passage is Hebrews 4. Uh, let me read. Um, I'm going to start in verse 11. I'm going to read verses 11, 12, and 13, and I want to start in verse 11 uh, to help us understand a bit of the context here. Um, I'll say a little more after I pray um, about the context uh, of these two verses that are maybe uh, already somewhat familiar to you. So follow along as I read Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray again together. God, I thank you for this church I thank you for the, the leadership here. I thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ here. Thank you for the unity we have in the gospel and the unity we have of purpose that we want to be your people in this place and be the light of Christ to these communities around us. We do pray that you will uh, work powerfully through your word to show people uh, hope, the only hope there, there is in a, in a fallen and broken world, uh, we, we see the need for hope. And, I, and we, we pray that our, our friends and neighbors and co-workers will, will uh, awaken to realize their need um, for Jesus Christ, who is our only Savior. I pray that you'll speak to us um, through your word, by your spirit this morning, apply these things to our hearts, convict us, um, inspire us, uh, stir in us a greater desire to, to know you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a brief explanation of how verses 12 and 13 uh, fit into this context of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And then we'll go through these two verses learning, uh, looking closely at these uh, five pieces um, that, that God's word is, number one, living number two, active, number three, piercing, number four, discerning, and number five, all-seeing. So first of all, a, a bit about the context here. If, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you're somewhat familiar with, with the Bible, uh, you've most likely heard these verses, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, uh, probably many times. Maybe you've memorized these verses at some point in the past. Um, you know, I've been familiar uh, with these verses for, for decades, but just in the past few weeks, uh, I've come to understand them in a new light uh, because I now understand better how they're functioning in the context of this passage. And I still think the broader applications uh, that we take from these verses are totally legitimate. Uh, 
and, and I'll, I'll talk about those some this morning. We'll talk about some of those as we think about the powerful benefits of God's word for our lives. But there's an additional dimension to this um, that I had not previously observed, namely the warning aspect of this passage, the warnings here. As verse 11 summarizes, uh, the command is to strive to enter God's rest. And there's a warning here too. There's a warning against disobedience. Because you need, need to understand this about Hebrews, the, the, the letter of Hebrews in, in this context here. Those who, those who don't obey, those who don't persevere, are also those who don't believe. So here's, here's the logic of Hebrews. Those who don't believe, those who don't obey, they don't enter God's rest. And as the writer of Hebrews shows, if you're familiar with this letter um, in, in chapters 3 and 4 here, going back to the sad example of the wilderness generation of Israelites. The writer of Hebrews has been reflecting on this here in chapters 3 and 4. Remember how the Israelites, they grumbled, they complained, they rebelled against God, and the consequence was that generation did not enter into the promised land. And the application for the first century church, which the writer of Hebrews was, was writing to, and also for us today, is this. Don't be like that wilderness generation of Israelites. Don't be like them. Learn from their bad example. Learn from their mistakes. Because if, if you, if I, if we don't believe, if we don't obey, if we don't persevere in faith, then we won't enter God's rest. We won't enter heaven. That's a very serious warning here in Hebrews. So verse 11 gathers up all of that historical summary from going all the way back to Exodus and Numbers and Psalm 95. The writer of Hebrews is, is quoting and alluding back to Psalm 95 throughout this section. And verse 11 sums that all up by saying, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, so we won't fall like those Israelites fell in the wilderness. And they, that whole generation died off in the wilderness during those 40 years. They did not get to go into the promised land. And then look at verse 12 here in our passage. What is the word it begins with? For, F-O-R. Okay, so verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For, what does that little word tell us? Tells us that verses 12 and 13 are going to be some kind of support or explanation of verse 11. Verse 11, summarizing the previous section, it's a passionate exhortation to persevere in the faith along with this weighty warning against disobedience and unbelief. And the reality of what verses 12 and 13 describe is going to help us, um, help us obey that command of verse 11 and help us to heed that warning. Because the Word of God peers deeply into each and every heart, seeing and knowing exactly what we're putting our hope in. Okay, so, so we need to recognize that there's a close connection here between verse 11 and then verses 12 and 13. So the judgment side of this message is that nobody is going to get into heaven. Okay, that's the parallel, the Israelites in the promised land, believers today and heaven. Those are the parallels being drawn here. Nobody is going to get into heaven who isn't actually resting in Jesus, who isn't actually a believer in Jesus by faith. Nobody is going to fool God because the Word of God is like a spiritual x-ray. Okay, so that's, that's one piece of this passage here. God's Word peers into our hearts, knowing everything about us, discerning uh, those who are true believers and those who aren't. Think of going through the security checkpoint in the airport. Okay, you know the drill, you know the routine. Um, they, they check your ID, you have to take your shoes off, right? You put your bag in that little conveyor belt thing that goes through the x-ray. Um, and then sometimes they also usher you into that little 
glass circular thing, you know, and there's a, a little outline on the wall of how they want you to stand, you know, something like this. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then that thing twirls around you, and you wonder what's going on. Am I about to be teleported somewhere? Or what is this? But they're, they're, the, the TSA, they're doing their job, right? They're, they're doing their job to try to screen everyone who comes through that checkpoint. Well, these verses in Hebrews 4 are showing us that the Word of God is, is kind of like that. For anyone who thinks they might be able to kind of sneak into heaven, for those who want to think that they're part of God's people, who think that they deserve to get in, and yet they're actually not trusting in Jesus, and they're not obeying, not following. So here's a piece of, of these verses that maybe have been so familiar to us, but here's the added dimension um, that I began to see as I studied this in context. God's Word is so powerful and so penetrating Nobody is going to fool God. The other side of that coin is, is the, the great benefit of God's word. That God, God is so gracious to give us this free invitation to rest in him. And, and the promise that all who do rest in him will come into our promised land, will come into heaven to be in God's presence forever. So there's two, two sides to this. There's judgment and salvation here. Those who continue in rebellion and unbelief will be excluded from God's presence by God's living and active word. But those who have even a, even a mustard seed of faith, we will be welcomed in by God's, again, by God's living and active word. So, th so that's a bit of, of verses 12 and 13 in the context here. Now let's go through these two verses, learning about God's word as living, active, piercing, discerning, and all-seeing. First of all, living. God's word is living. His word is living because he is living. God is not dead and neither is his word. His word is not dead. You know, many wonderful books have been written by women and men all through the centuries, women and men who are now dead. And we can still benefit greatly from so many of those books, but we can't have a personal relationship with any of those authors who have now died because they're, they're, they're dead. Their, their words remain, but those words are not living words. The writer of Hebrews has already emphasized the fact that God is living. Um, if you look back uh, to chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from whom? From the living God. The living God. And there are other references later in Hebrews to the living God. There's that emphasis on our God is a living God. And here, the emphasis is on his word as a living word. Uh, some of you know my friend uh, Farshid Razai. Um, Farshid was baptized uh, at our church last month and is a new member at Three Rivers Grace. And we're so glad that God brought Farshid from Iran to Malaysia and then to Pittsburgh and to Three Rivers Grace Church and to the ministry of PRISM who I know some of you are, are connected with as well. And so Farshid is now ministering to international students at Carnegie Mellon and, and University of Pittsburgh. And one of the amazing pieces of Farshid's testimony um, is about God's living and active word. When Farshid was in high school in Iran, uh, one of the popular newspapers surprisingly published um, the Sermon on the Mount. They put that right in their newspaper, Matthew chapter five through seven. Um, and it was near Christmas time, um, so I, I, this was meant as kind of a, a gesture of hospitality um, and, and uh, uh, you know, toward, toward, uh, toward Christians living in Iran, kind of a, a gesture of kindness to say, hey, we, you know, Merry Christmas to, to Christians who are living here. But, but what, a, what a surprising and shocking thing 
uh, for, for that to be allowed in, in a place where uh, Christian influences are so, um, so suppressed. Well, Farshid saw that in the newspaper and he cut that section out of the newspaper and that was his, that was basically all the Bible he had for quite some time. And it changed his life. It set him on a new path of, of wanting to learn more about Jesus, wanting to learn more about the living God of the Bible. God's Word is not merely a great piece of literature. Um, it's living. It reaches out and it changes people's lives by drawing us into a personal relationship with the living God. As a point of uh, application, we should keep this in mind with our evangelistic efforts. Let's not underestimate the power of getting the Word of God into people's hands and encouraging them to read it. Not everyone will respond the way Farshid responded, but some will. God is already working in people's lives, giving them an interest and a desire to know the living God of the universe. And a next step will be for them to encounter God in His Word. To, to read about him, to, to, to understand what he's revealed about himself. And this word will penetrate people's hearts and change them. So I would encourage you, think about uh, unbelieving family members or neighbors or coworkers. What if you this week sent someone a text message with a scripture verse in the text message? Just some verse that has encouraged you recently and you just send that to someone in a text message and say, hey, here's a, a, a verse from the Bible that has impacted my life, and I hope it's an encouragement to you as well. Or maybe you could invite an unbeliever to read a portion of the Bible with you. You could say, hey, you know, I, I wonder if you would want to read through the Gospel of Mark with me over the next couple months. You know, we can just kind of read it on our own and then maybe get together a couple times and, and talk about what we're reading. And, uh, you know, that might, might feel intimidating, but I, I would encourage you with this, that you don't need to have all the answers. Um, you don't need to fret about whether you'll be able to defend the Bible or defend Christianity. Don't let that stop you. None of us have all the answers. But if we can get the scriptures to more and more people and encourage them to read it, that's an awesome way we can be involved in the work God is doing in our world. So God's word is living. Next, God's word is active, living and active. God's word is living, it's not dead, and it's active, it's not passive. The Greek term here in the original uh, language of the New Testament, the Greek term for active here is the, is the Greek word energeo. We get the word energy from this word, okay? It's energetic, it's effective, Another place in the New Testament that this word is used is in Philemon, verse 6, where Paul prays for Philemon in this way. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Effective. Paul hopes and prays that Philemon's sharing of his faith will bear fruit, that it will be active and effective. And the writer of Hebrews tells us here in chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is both living and active effective. Um, as we read earlier from Isaiah 55, just to uh, read again verses 10 and 11 from that passage, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, God, God is on a mission, and His Word is on a mission in the world. Not just to sit on a shelf, but to change things, to change people's lives. Michael Kruger, in his commentary on Hebrews, he puts it like this. Um, he says, the Word of God is energetic, powerful, and mighty, it doesn't just say things, it does things. It is busy, working, uh, changing, building, convicting, encouraging, exposing, rebuking, giving light and wisdom, carving out the path of our lives, and showing us the truth of God. 
I think that's a great summary and emphasis of, of how energetic God's word is. And I want to share another verse uh, with you about the energy and effectiveness uh, of God's word. One of the specific ways that God's word is active is being active as a means of regeneration. God's word is a means of people being born again. 1 Peter 1 makes this point. Uh, 1 Peter 1 verses 22 and 23 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Okay, so if, if, if you're a believer, if you have been born again, how did that happen? It says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So how were you born again? Through the living and abiding word. Word of God. God's living word is active in the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of new birth. I read uh, an amazing testimony last week in the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Uh, This is another remarkable story from Iran. Um, The story begins with a young man who was, he was given a Bible. Uh, So he was in a, in a park in Iran uh, with some friends, and, and, and a guy came up, a stranger to them, but, but this guy was, was handing out Bibles and, and came up and handed a book and a magazine uh, to this young man. And, uh, and, and the man said, well, you know, you know what's going on here? What, you know, is there a charge for this? And the guy said, no, no, these are free. I just want to give these to you. And uh, the young man went home. He began reading the magazine and uh, then he opened up the book, and when he realized that the book was a Bible, uh, he, he was terrified because he knew Bibles were illegal uh, to have, and so he got rid of it right away. But um, just a few days later, he realized his, his brother, who also, also lived there uh, with their parents, um, his brother had a Bible, which had been given to him by a Christian friend. And uh, they were, of course, they were worried, uh, not only that this was illegal, but also worried about how their parents would react, that their, knowing their father would probably be furious. And, and sure enough, when that Bible was discovered by the parents, the, the, the parents were incensed. They were, they were very, very angry. The, the father took the Bible and, and threw it across the room, fearing uh, the wrath of Allah against them for having this in their home. But God's word was already at work uh, in, in this family, they, they observed answered prayers as they had these friends who were believers, and, and these believers were praying for specific things in the name of Jesus. And, and this family realized, wow, they, they are, are praying, and, and God is answering the, their prayers. And, um, and then one night, the son came home and found his dad um, with a Bible in his hands, a, a different Bible. Uh, This Bible had been gift-wrapped, had been put in their mailbox, and the father was there holding this Bible, and the son encouraged his dad and said, please, dad, this this is the second time you've had a Bible in your hands. Perhaps God wants to talk to you. Um, So, you know, don't, don't throw this Bible away. Read it. Read it. And that's what the father ended up doing. The sons with their father had some really meaningful conversations um, about their family, about life, about God. And, and the father, this is an interesting piece of the story. The father, much earlier in life, when he was a younger uh, man, he had worked as a sheep herder. So he had worked with sheep. He had been kind of like a shepherd. Um, and so as he began to read in the Gospels, he came across John 10, talking about Jesus as the good shepherd. And uh, the father, he remembered from his childhood how he would care for the flock of sheep, how he would uh, even sleep in the pen with the sheep when they were sick or injured, how the sheep would follow him and how they could the, hear his voice and recognize his voice, even if they were lost in the midst of hundreds of other sheep. So in, in that way and in other ways, God worked in this man's life very personally and, and powerfully um, in tangible ways like that. And later, reflecting back on that, on that moment, the father said, that night, all my fear was replaced by trust. I was certain that these were God's words, a letter from a father to his son, a letter to the lost sheep that is seeking a secure home. That night, God brought peace to my heart, and I started talking to him. What an amazing 
story, right, of how God powerfully worked through his word um, to, to, to penetrate that man's heart and to, and to turn him from being so, um, so uh, opposed to the God of the Bible, but then turning him around to a place of trust and, and hope in him. A takeaway for us uh, is to recognize the need for Bibles in many parts of the world. It may be difficult for us to imagine because we, we have access to so many Bibles, um, but there are many parts of the world still where there's limited access to Bibles. Um, in places like Iran, because it's illegal, uh, or in many other places for other people groups, there isn't yet a Bible uh, translated into their language. Um, so there's the need for Bible distribution in, in many places. There's also the need for Bible translation uh, for, for many unreached people groups. Uh, my my uh, sister, my younger sister, and her husband, uh, my brother-in-law, um, their names are Elizabeth and Chris, and they've been serving with an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators for many years. Uh, they're both gifted with, with languages. Uh, Chris is uh, regularly working with translation teams, mainly in Nigeria, um, who are methodically uh, working through Old Testament books of the Bible, translating those into the local languages there. Um, so there's another thing to think about as we think about God's Word being living and active. Let's remember to pray for Bible translators and that whole effort um, to get the Word of God into all these other languages. And this isn't, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much you're familiar with that process. It's, it's a very tedious process. It's not something you just, you know, plug into Google Translate and it spits it out um, as a new, new Bible translation. This is, it takes a lot of work um, to get it in the right, get the right words in the right context so it's conveying the right uh, the right meaning to all of these. And I would encourage you too, some of you uh, who, are, who are younger here, if you have an ability with languages, if, if you like learning other languages and God's given you a, a, a knack, a gift to be able to do that uh, easier than others of us, um, you know, maybe this is something you should, should pray about and think about uh, whether God might be calling you to, um, a, a, as a calling on your life to be involved in Bible translation. Maybe God would want you to, um, to, to put work and, and effort into that so that unreached people groups can, can hear and read God's word in their, in their own uh, mother language and, uh, and to be saved through that. A third aspect of God's word in these verses, it is piercing. It is piercing. The word of God is living and active. We've already looked at. And then it says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. That phrase there, sharper than any two-edged sword, I think we can see in that description the, the dual purpose of God's word, as I mentioned earlier. It simultaneous, simultaneously works to save and to judge. For those who, who bow before God's word and are cut to the heart, cut to the heart in a, in a saving way, in a repentant way, we will be, we will be saved. So there's that saving, uh, that saving work of God's word. Whereas on the other hand, those who remain stiff-necked and unrepentant, they'll be cut down by God's word and judged forever in hell. Uh, this was the case in Jesus' ministry, in, her, in his earthly ministry, as he preached, as he taught. Um, there, there was this two, two sides to it, where some received his word unto life and others rejected his word and were condemned. Just to give you a couple of examples, in John Chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So his words are life. And then later in John 12, speaking of those who reject him, Jesus says, The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So you see Jesus' word, double-edged here, two purposes. Uh, similarly, in the earliest days of the church, as the gospel was being proclaimed, um, it, it received opposite reactions following Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, 
Now, when they heard this, okay, so those who were listening to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart. That, that's the, the language the Bible uses to, to describe them uh, being pierced with the gospel. And what was their response? They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they were cut to the heart in a saving way. Those were cuts to the heart which led to life. They repented of their sins. They trusted in Jesus and were saved. And I want to say to you this morning, if you have not yet submitted your life to Jesus, if you're not resting in Jesus, please, today, right now, give up on your own strivings. Give up on the petty pleasures of this world. Acknowledge your sin. Confess your sin to the Lord. Ask for him to forgive you and cling to Jesus, our only Savior. He's, he's the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on a Sunday morning. That's why we're here this morning, on Sunday morning, to celebrate the empty grave. He is alive. And this living book tells us all about Jesus and extends this amazing free gift to us to receive the gift of eternal life in him. I pray this morning that, that, that we will be cut to the heart with God's word in a way that, that, that for anyone who's not yet a Christian, that it would br bring you maybe today for the first time into a personal relationship with Jesus, which leads to eternal life in heaven with him. Well, as this message was being uh, preached in the early church, um, there were those who received it. But on the other hand, there were those who rejected this good news. So to give you one example of that, in, uh, or a couple examples of that, in Acts chapter 5, verse 33, some who heard what Peter and the apostles were saying, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Okay, so there was that violent opposition to the word, to the gospel. Or in Acts chapter 7, verses 50, verse 54, this is Stephen's speech. And following Stephen's speech in Acts 7, it says they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Do you see that it's the same word of God that brings out such strong and opposite reactions? It's a double-edged sword. It's a piercing word. The testimony of Augustine is a wonderful illustration of how God's word pierced his heart in a saving way. Augustine of Hippo, um, who lived all the way back in the 300s, um, who had such a, he had lived such a godless and worldly life until he was miraculously saved. And then he became such an influential leader in the church, and we still read his books today. Well, it was, uh, it was on a day uh, uh, in late August, the year was 386, when Augustine was almost 32 years old. He was visiting a friend, and God really began to convict Augustine of his sinful lifestyle. He was in a small garden that was attached to the home where he and his friend were staying at the time, and uh, there was this battle raging inside of Augustine. The struggle was between the pleasures of sin and the pleasure of knowing God. And Augustine was so distraught because he was so addicted to these worldly pleasures, but also it was dawning on him that really the only hope of lasting joy and happiness and contentment and pleasure is in God himself. But he, he, he was wrestling because he didn't know if he could give up these pleasures of the world. And then he was drawn to, to the scriptures in, in a unique way in that moment, God kind of worked in, in a unique way to just draw him to the scriptures that were there near him. And he just kind of opened it up and, you know, kind of did one of these things, just kind of started reading wherever, you know, right where his eyes fell on the page. And this was the passage he came to, Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, that says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, that is exactly the command Augustine needed to hear in that moment, in the torment of his struggle between fleshly lusts and godly pleasure. 
He, he was in bondage to lust and vanity and pride. And it was only God's grace that could set him free. And it was God's word piercing his heart in that moment that was the means of his conversion. Uh, one more quick thing I want to say on this point, and then we'll move on. Um, but I think this verse is sometimes over-interpreted uh, in terms of the soul and spirit division, um, the bone and marrow. I agree with Philip Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews where he says, our author, uh, the writer of Hebrews here, is, is not concerned to provide here a psychological or anatomical analysis of the human constitution, but rather what, what he's really doing here is uh, to describe in graphic terms the penetration of God's word to the innermost depth of man's personality. I think that's a helpful uh, insight and, and assessment of what's going on in these verses. I just want to throw that out there for anyone who has that, that kind of mind, you know, curious of what these phrases mean for our understanding of ourselves. I, I don't think we're meant to get too much out of those verses uh, along those lines. Rather, I think it's simply a, a very vivid way of, of describing and emphasizing how deeply God's word pierces our lives. Okay, next, uh, discerning discerning. God's word is living, active, piercing, and now discerning. This is the remainder of verse 12. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, we can think about the, the dual impact of God's word in both saving and uh, judging. Uh, for the person who outwardly may, may seem moral and religious, but if their heart is turned away from God, with thoughts and intentions that are self-focused and worldly, God's word sees right through the veneer of outward righteousness and discerns the, the motivations and, and, and sees the fundamental posture of the inner self. God's word peers into each of our hearts in that way. But let's focus on the, on the, the benefit of God's word um, not just on the kind of the warning and, and judgment side of this, but, but more so on the benefit of God's word for us as believers. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus, who are resting in him, seeking to know him better and to follow him more closely, the divine discernment of God's word is such a gift to us. I just want to encourage us in a couple of practical ways here, and then we'll go to our fifth and final point. But as we consider how discerning God's word is, let's think first about how we should personally, how each of us should invite this discernment into our own personal lives. I want to encourage each of you to have a Bible reading plan. Okay, maybe many of you already have a Bible reading plan, and that's awesome. And for any of you who, who don't yet have some kind of structured Bible reading plan, let me encourage you this morning to, to do that. Um, you don't need to set out to read the entire Bible in one year, um, although some of you may do that. And maybe that's helpful for you. But if you don't have a plan right now, um, that might be too much to jump into. Um, you probably don't want to jump into a Bible in, in, in a year plan right away. But, but have some kind of plan. Um, if you've never read the Bible consistently before, maybe you want to begin um, by reading through one of the Gospels. You know, you could take the next month and just every day or pretty much every day, you know, read a chapter. Read a chapter of the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew. And um, don't beat yourself up if you miss a day, but just, you know, try to discipline yourself to, to read a portion of Scripture each day and to work through uh, a book of the Bible, particularly a Gospel. Um, and then you could read through one of the letters of the New Testament, maybe Philippians or James. And then you could choose an Old Testament book to read through. And the point is to, to expose yourself to the divine discernment of God's word. You're opening yourself up to be influenced and challenged, convicted by this supernatural book that's unlike any other book. Expect it to be painful sometimes as God opens your eyes to the sins in your own heart that that maybe you have ignored or maybe you've just been completely oblivious to, God's word will point those things out to us. And also expect to be inspired and, and overjoyed as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. 
And he, here's another thing. Pray as you read. Pray as you read God's word. Don't just read this like you would read a history book or like you would read a novel. Read this as a personal letter from your heavenly father. And, and then talk to him as you read this gift that he's given to you. He, he's listening. So he, he's speaking and he's listening. So enter into that dialogue with the Lord as you read his word and pray. Another practical suggestion is to spend some time each week reflecting on the sermon you heard Sunday morning. You want to get the maximum benefit out of this time together with your church family. So um, if, if you're a note taker, you know, take those notes. And then, you know, maybe later on, uh, on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening or sometime on Monday or Tuesday, get those notes back out, review those notes, and, uh, and, and pray over those things. Or if you're not a note taker, that, that's okay too. You can still review the passage. Go back to the passage. Uh, you can remember that. Go back, reread it. You know, kind of think over the main points of the sermon, some of the insights um, that, that were helpful, and, and pray over that, asking God to apply those verses to you very personally and practically. And then another way we should think, um, think about God's Word, and, and another way we should seek to benefit from God's, God's discerning Word is in the realm of discipleship and counseling one another. Let me ask you, do, you, do you have regular times of reading God's Word together with brothers and sisters in Christ? Studying God's Word together, praying over God's Word together. This is so important. Uh, are you part of a cell group, part of one of the uh, Sunday school class? Uh, do you have fellow believers you meet with maybe one-on-one -on -one or maybe in a, you know, two, you know, three or four people meeting together uh, with some regularity? Um, you know, this can happen in person or over a phone call or a Zoom call. Uh, this, this can happen lots of different ways. The point is that God intends us intends for us to engage with his word, not only personally, as important as that is, you know, we want to commune with the Lord, you know, one-on-one -on -one, privately with him, but also in community with others. Okay, so this isn't just a, just a, just a private thing, but it's, a, it's a, a corporate thing as well to do in community. And when those difficult times come up in life, we need to have friends in the Lord friends who we trust, friends who know the word and love the word and who can speak the word into our lives with, with love and discernment. Okay, let's go to our final point now, uh, just briefly. I'm, I'm almost done. But our fifth point is all seeing, all seeing. In our short passage today, Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13, we're, we're moving now from verse 12 to verse 13. And you'll notice that Verse 12 talked about the Word of God, right? And now verse 13 talks about God Himself using pronouns to refer to God. And uh, so, so we see from verse 12 to 13, we, we see the very tight connection uh, between God's Word and God Himself, which of course makes complete sense. The, the, the living Word coming from the living God the active, piercing, discerning word coming from our God who is all-seeing. Let me read verse 13 again for us. And no creature is hidden from his sight, that is God's sight. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, God, to whom we must give account. So the, the section here, the, the, the larger section um, and this short passage we're looking at, concludes uh, with the weighty reminder of God's omniscience. He is all-seeing. Nothing escapes God's view. Which again is a warning for those who would naively think that, uh, that we can get away with anything, uh, hiding anything from God. It's also a comfort to those of us who realize the safest place in all the universe is in the in, in the embrace of our God who knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees into our hearts and souls more than we can discern even about ourselves. And there's, there's, there's a peace in uh, trusting in him in that way. 
And the verse concludes with this sober reminder as well of, of our accountability to God. We must give account to him. You see that at the end of verse 13? And uh, here, here's something that doesn't come across in the translations. Uh, in the Greek, that phrase, to whom we must give account, more literally is to whom we must give our word. Our word. In the Greek, it's logos. Maybe you've heard that Greek word, logos, which means word. So verse 12 begins with the logos of God, the word of God. And verse 13 ends with the requirement that we give God our logos, our word. We must give an account to him. One commentator says it uh, this way. He to whom the word has been given shall be required to give a word in return. So that's something important for us to be reminded of here. Brothers and sisters, we are so blessed to have Bibles, to have multiple Bibles, to have all kinds of Bible tools to help us study God's Word and understand His Word, to have a church family where you can learn and grow together and disciple and counsel one another with God's Word. Let's not take this book for granted. And let's recognize we're going to be called to account. We need to recognize the responsibility we have because of all that's been given to us and entrusted to us. The all-seeing God, our gracious God, has given us his word, and, and he expects us to put it to work in our lives, to be central in our lives and in our church. And God delights to watch our lives gradually transformed by his holy scriptures. So let's put these things into practice today and this week and in the weeks and months to come. This morning we've talked about God's word as living, as active, as piercing, discerning, and God being all-seeing. Let me ask you again, what, what is your favorite book? What are some of your favorite books? However we may answer that question with all the the, the merely human books in the world that we can benefit from, I hope we all realize there is one book that is in a category of its own. This book, God's book, his living and active word. Let me pray again for us. God, we do thank you that you are not silent. You have not left us to wonder about who you are or how to know you, but you have sent your son your word, your eternal word. You've sent your son into this world to take on human flesh and to live as one of us, yet without sin, and then to die in our place, and then to rise again. And you've given us your word written in this book. And I pray, God, that we will not uh, let this just sit on the, on the shelf and collect dust, but I pray that each and every day we will be engaging with your word, hearing from you and speaking to you in prayer. And we pray that you will grow us and, and produce much fruit in our lives for your glory. Amen.